0: Spice. Pure, unrefined spice.
1: Ooh, Jonah, I have a present for you. Really? I But I, 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 my birthday was months ago. I turned 39, you know.
2: Well, it's a special occasion. You see, I wanted to celebrate our first time covering a David Lynch film together.
1: Oh, well, that's sweet. Thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's, um, Oh, it's a... Uh, just a wooden box with a hole in the side. Put your hand in the box. I don't want to. These carvings look weird. Is that Sting's face? I don't want to. I don't want to put my hand in the box. He's saying don't stand so close to me and put your hand in that box. I, I, I feel like it's going to hurt, Dave. Do it! I feel like it's going to hurt. Oh, okay. Wait, 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 wait. Is there something in there? Dave. This is just a piece of paper. I mean, it, well, I mean, it looks like you wrote in Cran, Dune rules with two O's and a Z? Well, of
2: course it does, Jonah. All modern science fiction movies are inspired by Dune. So Dune does
1: indeed rule. Dave, I dig it. Let's get into it. This is Galaxy
2: Brains, and today we're letting the spice flow with Polka Dot Man himself, David Doss for David Lynch's Dune. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling.
1: And I'm Dave's own personal mind killer,
2: Jonah Ray. Each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive at the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Today, our guest is actor and Dune superfan David Dasmalchen, and we are talking about the delightfully silly cult classic, David Lynch's Dune. But before we thrust our mental sandworms into the proverbial desert tunnels of this sci-fi classic, let's lube ourselves up with a little segment we call
1: Logic Brain. (laughs) Still a little horned up from that Venom episode, huh? The sandworms go through the tunnels. That's their thing.
2: If you have never seen the original Dune or read the books, please keep in mind we are going to spoil this thing six ways to Sunday. That includes the subsequent novels in the Dune series.
1: Ah, uh, this is going to be a podcast for the Doonies out there. The what? The Doonies. That's my little nickname. For fans of Frank Herbert's sci-fi epic about a distant future, humanity has abandoned electronic technology, turned people into living computers, and mastered faster than light travel through the use of highly potent substance called spice. Did you take some spice before reading that copy? Because you just nailed
2: it. <laughs> that was amazing. You were, you were talking without moving. <laughs> Traveling without moving, Dave. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, 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 I'm not uh, referring to my uh, cliff notes here. Actually, Spice doesn't make you a better podcast host, but it does make you smarter, helps you live longer, and allows for the folding and navigation of space traveling without moving. Yeah, you said that already. I heard you say that. You don't have to say it again.
1: I'm just trying to stick to the lines, okay? Okay,
2: well, I like to improvise, okay? You say potato, and I say something completely different that we didn't prepare.
1: Oh, no, no starches for me. Thank you so much. Okay, you're right. Yeah, I'm
2: sorry. I realize you're on a very strict Whole30 right now. (laughs) Is Spice Whole30 uh, compliant or no? I guess we should ask Piter later on in the podcast. (laughs) Spice can only be found on one planet, the desert world of Arrakis, also known as Dune. The Galactic Emperor places Duke Leto Atreides in charge of Arrakis, replacing the nefarious
1: Baron Vladimir Harkonnen as the ward of this vital world. And as my man Admiral Ackbar once said, it's a trap. The Emperor sees Duke Leto as a threat. So he conspires with House Harkonnen to assassinate the Duke and wipe out House Atreides.
2: Well, even though Duke Leto knows it's a trap, he can't really refuse the emperor. So he takes his entire family, plus a giant army with him, to Arrakis. His suspicions are correct. Shit goes totally sideways, the Duke dies, and his son Paul has to fulfill a long-standing prophecy. Destroy the Harkonnens and liberate Arrakis and the native inhabitants called Fremen.
1: This is not even close to scratching the surface of this story. This book is like a lead brick, and if you dropped it from a 10 story building, you might leave a crater on the sidewalk. No, you know what? Even further than that, it's gonna drop down, and you're just gonna inadvertently give a Chud the Book of Doom. Chud, check your basement. Hey,
2: oh no, we can't let the Chuds read. If they learn how to read, they'll take over. (laughs) Don't give them the power of learning. The 1984 film adaptation directed by David Lynch condensed or dispensed with hundreds of pages of backstory, character development, and nuance. It's infamous for being a financial disaster with a nearly incomprehensible third act, which I've seen this movie a hundred times and I still lose my mind at some point. Also, it has the musician Sting in a blue space thong. Lynch has totally disowned the movie and refuses to talk about it publicly.
1: We, on the other hand, have made no such vow. That's right,
2: Jonah. We're going to talk about all of it in a segment we call Critical Brains. (laughs) David Lynch's Dune, Jonah. What a wild ride. This is a movie that I think maybe isn't very good. It's not
1: good. On Mystery Science Theater, I've watched a lot of you know, Star Wars era ripoff movies, Star Crash. Space Mutiny. Space Mutiny. But the, even in my time of having to kind of go through these movies like Star Crash and, you know, The Shape of Things to Come, stuff like that, or anything that got made by some like Italian filmmaker just trying to make a buck post-Star Wars. Are you talking about Dino
2: De Laurentiis
1: himself? <laughs> yeah. Kinda, <are> <laughs> also responsible for Flash Gordon, Dino. That's right. Yeah. I found out about Dune through learning about David Lynch. Yeah. And I was like, well, I guess I got to watch this David Lynch movie, too. And uh, it was hard for me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I watched Dune, one, because I am a sci-fi aficionado, and it seemed like it was faster to watch the movie than read the book. (laughs) So I was like, I'll just watch the movie. And it was famously terrible.
1: Yes. Like that saying I've always done, why read the book when the movies do the reading for you? <laughs> That's what you should tell the chuds so they don't have to learn how to read. Uh, just
2: watch <laughs> the movie, guys. It's fine. Watch the movie, chuds. <laughs> it's
1: Daniel Stern's cinematic debut.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, I, I watched it and I really enjoyed the first. 30, 40 minutes. When we start with the narration, though, I'm a little I'm a
1: little taken aback. You're a big exposition head, though. You li- <laughs> that's, all, that's what you like. The first 30 to 40 minutes of this movie is just exposition.
2: Speaking of heads, the head of Virginia Madsen is the first thing you see. Great actor, Academy Award nominated actor. But why are we seeing her face here? <laughs> you know, it would be like instead of the crawl in Star Wars, you just had a uh, Babu Freak explaining what happened to the Emperor after Return of the Jedi. I don't want that.
3: Oh yes. I forgot to tell you. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe.
1: And the way she kind of fades in and out, like she's basically Columboing the intro. It's like, oh yeah, 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 one more thing. <laughs> also, the spice can uh, change time. Uh,
2: those are those later these witches? Uh, they're sort of like uh, I, I don't know, like uh, they control everything. Kind uh, of uh, kind of normie there, a
1: <laughs> the little Norm McDonald. Yeah, and then there's a you know the spice that gives you an internal life. You get full time. Yeah, and thinking about these worms, right? They're huge. I hate to see the early bird that goes for that worm, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Hey, Longer than a wiener day. Ah, wiener day. Get out of me there, wiener day. (laughs) But it is interesting because it is, it does feel as if David Lynch, say he was just a regional theater producer and director and then uh, that year's production for his cast in whatever regional theater thing he ran was like, well, I guess I'll use everybody I always use in this thing. So it has real... We're putting on a show kind of vibes. It's like, well, you'll play the old man because we're all children.
2: Yeah, just kind of pretend. It's fine. This is an interesting time in his career. So I should give you guys some context. This movie came out in 1984, and that was his follow-up to The Elephant Man. The Elephant Man was his second feature film. Eraserhead became this huge cult classic in the late 70s.
1: Mel Brooks sees the movie. Uh, so let's be, let's, it's Stu Kornfeld. Stu, Stuart, yes. We got to give shout outs to legendary producer and recently departed, Stu Kornfeld. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Who like championed David Lynch to make Elephant Man through Brooks Home, which is Mel Brooks' company, as well as David Cronenberg. To Make the Fly, which is also a Brooks film. I implore everybody, and I'm saying this as a guy who was friends with him, and he was a producer on The Meltdown with Joni Kamel, our Comedy Central show. This guy is legendary entertainment zealot. Look him up. He's been there and around on almost all of your favorite stuff over the years.
2: Yeah, it's amazing, you know, when he passed away, how many people were like, yes, he had this influence in my career. He did this thing for me. He was a minch. He was this great guy. So yeah, absolutely. He deserves a lot of credit for David Lynch getting the Elephant Man. And then, you know, making this huge hit movie that is nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards and really kind of launches Anthony Hopkins into another strata as an actor in the United States. So he's hot shit at this point. David Lynch is like the guy. Yes, And he can pick and choose whatever he wants to do. Uh, I think a lot of people know this, but not not everybody knows this, that he was offered Return of the Jedi. I did not know that. Yes. So that was one of the post-Elephant Man movies that he was up for. He said no. He said, I'm going to do Dune. And Dune had been floating around Hollywood for a long time. If you have not seen Jodorowsky's Dune,
1: the documentary about the uh, development of Dune as a feature film. What's wild about Jodorowsky's Dune, and, you know, we're talking about this guy that made A Holy Mountain, wild, absurdist director. He poured his entire self into developing Dune as a feature my ambition was tremendous. I wanted to make something sacred to change the young mind of all the world. But it ultimately didn't work out. But what he did with this development book, this lookbook he put together, is that Yodorovsky is now also responsible for a huge amount of sci fi that will come out in years to come.
2: Yeah, just specifically Alien. You know, H.R. Yeah. Giger was doing a lot of the design work for Dune at that point. And Ridley Scott eventually comes onto to this project after Jodorowsky is unceremoniously dumped. So Ridley Scott comes in, he sees this stuff, he sees all this, this design work, and then his brother sadly passes away from cancer, and he drops out. So he goes off eventually to do other things, specifically Alien. <laughs> and he brings H.R. Giger in, to do the design work for the alien and all the, you know, spaceship stuff. It really did change movie history. And this eventual feature film release of Dune also changed film history because it ruined David Lynch's life. (laughs) This is a famously tortured production where it cost tens of millions of dollars. They were in Mexico, and they had all kinds of uh, problems with the heat and people being uncomfortable and people eating bad food and all all the stuff that could happen when you're on location. And David Lynch is fighting the entire time with Dino De Laurentiis, the producer, who, again, famously (laughs) produced the abysmal Flash Gordon adaptation. They're fighting over the tone of this movie. And the script, apparently David Lynch wanted the lighting to be different. But De Laurentiis said, it's got to be bright. You got to see everything. So it's just washed out. The entire film is just like so bright. And you see the seams on every costume and all of the sets. The sets are beautiful. But boy, oh boy, does it look nothing like another David Lynch movie. There are moments at the beginning, the Guild Navigator's weird vagina mouth and all the stuff on the Harkonnen planet feels Lynchian. And you see, of course, Jack Nance, who famously was in Eraserhead. You see people who would who worked for Lynch before in the movie, as you pointed out, but there are a lot of people who worked with David Lynch for the first time in this movie, specifically Kyle MacLachlan. This was his first time working with David Lynch, and he would go on, of course, to have an amazing career, thanks to Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks. That's right. Another interesting, one of your one of your favorites in this film, Brad Dorff. Brad Dorff is in it, yes. He would go on to be in Blue Velvet as well, right? Yes, I think so. I think so, yeah. Oddly enough, Patrick Stewart shows up in this movie playing Gurney Halleck.
3: I'm not in the mood.
0: Not in the mood. Mood's a thing for cattle and love play, not fighting.
2: And
1: that's an interesting story how that happened, right?
2: Yeah, apparently Patrick Stewart has said on record That he was cast mistakenly and was not David Lynch's pick to play Gurney Halleck at all. It was another Patrick Stewart he wanted. Yeah, clearly. Maybe he wanted Stuart Copeland from the police.
1: He wanted all members of the police. (laughs) Just every single one. Just Stu Copeland would give me that reverse feeling in the middle of a riff. I'll
2: even settle for Tangerine Dream. Get me Christopher Frank. I don't know. that it is a big Patrick Stewart who gets to have a scene with a dog. (laughs) During the assault on the Atreides compound in the capital city of Arrakis, he's just carrying a dog and shooting this gun. (laughs) I don't know why. By the way, there are no guns in the book, dude. They don't have guns. They just fight with their hands, with knives. As it should be. As it should be, yes. The gentleman's way
1: of uh, settling a score. This winter in the last duel. (laughs) (laughs) from the guys that brought you how do you like them apples comes the last duel guys
2: I'm just gonna say this here Kyle you can cut this out if you want but I'm gonna say it we're not doing the last duel on galaxy brains (laughs) not doing it don't think that's a movie we're gonna talk about that's fine by me I'll go see it I like sword movies I'll go see it hey you know what They got a sword in it I'm there yeah. They just better use it, unlike that Green Knight. I didn't use that sword at all. No swords touched. But let's talk about Dune some more. <laughs> because this movie was such a disaster, such a failure at the box office.
1: But here's an odd thing. Dave, Dune doesn't show up in the list of biggest box office bombs. Interesting. Give me the top 10. Okay, top 10. Let's do this. Uh, the 1997 version of Lolita. Okay. Yeah. Which was $62 million budget it grossed worldwide 1.1 million
2: yeah how did they spend that much money on a movie that's just about people talking anyway what's next heaven's gate comes in second place uh Uh, i think it's actually a pretty good movie have you seen it recently or at all no i don't think i ever have it's actually good kind of was ruined by bad press in the trades and stuff but i think it's pretty good same thing with ishtar which i imagine will end up on this list too
1: Ishtar is on this list, not in the top five. Let's go to the next one, The Fall of the Roman Empire from 1964. It cost $18.4 and it made $4.8 This is before inflation, guys, okay? So it's way
2: more than that Uh, in in U.S.
1: dollars in 2021. Yeah. Incheon, which is a 1981 epic war film about the Battle of Incheon, considered to be a turning point of the Korean War, was directed by Terrence Young.
2: Oh, yeah, Terrence Young, James Bond director, directed Goldfinger, a bunch of other stuff, I believe.
1: So this is the fifth. This one cost hundred million. It made seven point one at the box office. It was the Adventures of Pluto Nash. Oof, God, what a piece of garbage that was! The two thousand two American science fiction action comedy film, directed by Ron Underwood and starring Eddie Murphy, Randy Quaid, Rosario Dawson, Joey Pants, Jay Moore, Louise Guzman. But let me say this as we go finish up this list: nobody is
2: trying to make a bad movie. Okay, one thing you, everybody should know about Hollywood is everybody's trying to make a good movie. And sometimes the uh, forces outside of your control cause you to make a bad movie. But I don't think Eddie Murphy was like, this is going to stink. Or (laughs) the studio was like, this script is bad. We should make it. It's
1: like so many things can go wrong during the course of it. So many things. Yeah. And so, of course, right in number six, I'm not going to go keep on going down. But of course, number six is Geely. Of course. uh, It cost 75.6, made 7.3.
2: Of the movies on this list, the only ones that I recommend you see are Heaven's Gate and Ishtar. Ishtar I saw recently at uh, the Los Feliz 3 in L.A. God, it's funny. So good. Don't just assume that a movie is bad because of the box office. In the case of Dune, Dune maybe isn't like the most successful, awesome movie when you watch it, but it does have a certain charm to it. The design is amazing. Some of the performances are really great. Sting is in it, and you see him in a thong. That's cool. all right will! But Dune influenced movie history forever. It changed science fiction history forever. Because if you go back to Dune, the books, they really do have a lot in common with some other movies that you have seen before. It's kind of the most influential sci-fi novel. Whereas Lord of the Rings is probably the most influential fantasy novel series. Dune is the most influential sci-fi this is a hugely influential book series just the idea of like space and history and these grand kind of like imperial machinations clearly influenced star wars you really can see it there that you wouldn't have the sarlacc in return of the jedi without dune and the sandworms you wouldn't have tatooine you wouldn't have coruscant you wouldn't have any of this stuff dune is like the beginning of
1: science fiction. Okay, Dave, you've been going on for a bit now. You know, Star Wars got the desert planet from Dune. That's just a fact. But they also got the planet-wide city from Coruscant from Foundation's capital of their own galactic empire, Trantor. Star Wars got the proton torpedoes that Luke uses to destroy the Death Star from Star Trek's photon torpedoes. Luke Skywalker kind of looks like drawings of Flash Gordon. George Lucas even tried to buy the rights to Flash Gordon before he settled down to write Star Wars. Also, the entire plot is essentially Carousel's hidden fortress. Star Wars is a million different influences rolled into one. You can't just say it's only from Dune. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that without Dune, there'd be no Star
2: Wars, no Babylon Five, no Stargate SG One, no Battlestar Galactica. There might not even be a Game of Thrones. All that palace intrigue, betrayal, and prophecy in Game of Thrones feels like it's directly inspired by Dune. The dragons are basically sandworms. Remember in the movie where Paul has to ride a sandworm to prove he's cool or something? Isn't that like Danny riding the dragon in Game of Thrones?
1: I mean, that's an interesting point, I guess, but... Interesting? Ah, uh, yes. Yes, it is, Jonah. Interesting. Ooh. Dave, did you Oh, did you just drink from the water of life? You went totally ball.
2: Yes, Jonah. I've joined the Bene Gesserit
1: order. Wait, aren't Benny Gesserit members usually women? Things have gotten way more progressive on Wallach 9, Jonah. Oh, well, I mean, that's cool. I mean, that's good. That's good to hear. That's
2: good to hear. Yeah, like anybody can be a Reverend Mother now. It's really quite lucrative.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's really... Wait, what do you mean lucrative?
2: Uh, yes, uh, if you want to be in the Bene Gesserit, you need to sell this box of leggings. Huh? Aren't they nice? See this design? Those are rainbows. Wh- you, you want me to sell leggings? I don't... This is about starting your own business, Jonah. Financial independence. Wait, hold on. I thought this was a religious sect. It is. That's why you need to recruit ten more people to sell these leggings with you. What? The more people you sign up, the bigger your bonus is at the end of the month. Hold on. These are LuLaRoe leggings. This is a pyramid scheme. No, this is a religion, Jonah. A super cool religion that influenced every sci-fi movie and TV show of the last half century. I'm not... going to sell your stinky leggings. Get out of here, weirdo. Fine. I guess you don't want financial independence or fellowship with your neighbors. Your loss. Hey, Kylie. Uh, yeah, Dave? Any interest in a totally not-fraudulent get-rich-quick scheme?
3: Sounds interesting. You know I love to be included.
1: Also, how do you feel about shaving your head?
3: think I could pull it off.
1: Oh, boy. Uh, when we get back, we'll be joined by cast member from the new Dune movie and genre film icon, David Dasmalchen. I assure you, these leggings are buttery soft. Feel them. I don't want to. I d- Put them on. Ooh. Oh, hold on. That is buttery soft. And look at that butt. Firm.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. We have arrived at the blessed conclusion that all modern science fiction is inspired by Dune. Which means the spices flowed, the worm signs have been red, and Jonah's eyes have finally
1: stopped glowing blue. I like the eyes. I think I pulled it off. I mean, should I get context to just kind of keep it going, or...? <laughs> Excuse me. Here to answer none of those questions about your eyes, but other
2: questions about Dune, is actor and Dune expert David Dasmalchen. David, thank you so much for joining us. You are in a car right now, which is exciting. Hi. Hello.
3: I am. I'm, I'm traveling. I'm traveling through time. Without moving? We're spanning time together. We're in the car phase.
1: Dave, can you do that more as a David Lynch voice? More David Lynch voice when you talk about your traveling.
3: We are, we're, we're spanning time now. And it's it's the miracle of knowing that an object in motion is working against invisible forces that are existing in the universe. <laughs> 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 all
2: right, so the first question I want to ask you, the first real question is... Yes, ask. Do all modern science fiction movies, television shows pay homage to Dune? Is Dune the gold standard? You're, you're an expert in the sense that you're both a fan and you're in the new
3: movie. So, like, what's your take on this? Much in the way that J.R.R. Tolkien's <laughs> journey into the Shire, from the Shire, set the gold standard in the realms of fantasy, I do believe that Frank Herbert's Dune is the gold standard of science fiction. Yes, I absolutely think so. I think it's a, a well from which springs so much inspiration and so much philosophy and so much fantastical imagination that has inspired generations of science fiction creators, whether they, and I would assume most do, but I would say whether they know it or not.
2: How did you first come into contact with this story and, and these books?
3: So I was in high school and I had gotten into science fiction and I was, you know, basically reading what was given to us in class. And then from that kind of spring into other discoveries. And I found. June when I was in my late teens and I think some, was some like musician or somebody that I, that I liked, but it, it was, it was referenced in a way that was, that was something to do with drugs or drug culture. Cause I was really fascinated with psychedelics. I still am, but like psychedelic drugs and, and that realm. And, and mind you, this is coming from a guy who's now 20 years clean and sober. But at that point, like The whole mythology around psychedelia, and then this lore of Frank Herbert and who he was, and then this book, Dune, which is about so much more than psychedelia. But at that time, I think that was a bit of a gateway, as was I was beginning to make my foray into becoming a David Lynch devotee, and therefore rented Dune with some friends on a VHS. And thoroughly enjoyed it. But the book really did change the way I looked at literature. And it, at, at the young age, when I first read it, I had a big impact on me. And I and I definitely felt a lot of association with Paul, because I was going through so many transformations and changes and breaks in loyalty from both groups of friends and, and family and being in the midst of, you know, really catastrophic divorce and, and lot, lots of things, cultural shifts. I went from Kansas to Chicago. And I was raised in between like really religious ideological kind of dogma and like extreme progressive artistic liberalism. And then my father was from the Middle East. There were so many things that resonated with me with the book.
1: Was that band Iron Maiden? (laughs) Was that the band that you heard talking about Dune?
3: I would like to have said it was, but it wasn't. It was a musician. It was like some, I'll dig it up. I'll send you the text that I've been composing for 48 hours for you, Jonah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like a, just the Civil War letters of text.
2: For context, David has spent weeks and months agonizing over a message to Jonah. <laughs> uh, and we discussed this before we started recording.
3: There's some truth to that, but I agonize and stress over messages to, no no offense, Jonah, but to pretty much freaking everybody. But yes, I do.
1: I'm super judgmental too. I'm probably your most judgmental friend. I know.
2: There's a lot of agony in Dune, guys. I and know. uh And a lot of stressing out by all these characters Because they're a part of this prophecy and this kind of like grandiose movement of the galaxy into a new phase of history. And that is something that is now like really ingrained in every other science fiction story that's followed it, and certainly Star Wars. Like, Mm -hmm. you could see the emphasis on prophecy and the emphasis on um, galactic intrigue and all of these things just inherent in Star Wars. So I want to go through some of these other franchises, and let's just talk about how Dune influenced each of these science fiction franchises.
3: Sure, 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 sure.
2: Let's talk about Alien and Dune's relationship because we discussed this earlier uh, on the podcast that uh, from an artistic standpoint, from a set design standpoint, you can certainly see the DNA of the process of making Dune.
3: Absolutely. 1000% and the style, obviously, the Geiger, the the stuff that Ridley's imagination was triggered by when dreaming up this nightmare, I think came from if we're talking about this new film of Denis, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, then the way that he...
1: Dave, do you feel like it's like you know the people that made the new Dune and like it's like, how can you not be inspired by the original, but also having seen Jodorowsky's Dune, seeing everything else that kind of came from Dune, inspired by Dune, Dune itself, it's like, is this new Dune for you? And maybe some of the people that worked on it, maybe like a swirling of almost as if the the production took some spice and was able to fold time in on itself and, you know, make a combination of everything that's... Yeah, like a feedback loop of inspiration.
3: This film achieves something that is the one in a million kind of experience that you get when you go to the cinema. For me, as a fan, as an audience member, and obviously it's close to my heart and I care deeply about both this project and, and the filmmakers, but all that aside, I feel like what I've seen is something that cultivates all the rich history of the limits that have been pushed with artistic achievement when it comes to cinema. And that does include previous science fiction, incredible operas, and great works of of cinema. But it it really does do something that I haven't seen before. And it's hard for me yet to quantify it. It's all of those things. Yes, the work that precedes it that has led to this moment. But Denise's imagination, you know, it's like the melange was flowing.
2: You are in a really unique situation in that you... You're in this movie and you've seen Denis uh, sort of interpret this work, but you also have worked with David Lynch. You were in Twin Peaks and you've seen his creative process. And of course, Lynch was the first person to try to adapt these massive tomes, these this series of books. What do you think about their unique kind of creative process? Can you compare these two visionary directors to each other
3: in any way? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of similarity between those two artists, at the root of which the the greatest similarity is the depth of their heart, their humanity. They're both incredibly and intensely empathic humans. The other thing that I think is incredibly kindred between the two of them and watching them get to work up close and personal is the strength and confidence of their vision being something that they know so deeply. It's like in their DNA. So there's no question. There's no stuttering in their ability to communicate.
1: So when like a department head comes, it's like, it's like, hey, we have this and this. And he goes that. They're both able to just kind of like.
3: Oh, absolutely. Very strongly knows what it is and, and passionately knows what it is. But with so much love and kindness that those department heads and every other actor and other artist, you know, helping collaborate feel safe, I think taking big swings and bringing them big options and they both are kind of alien people you know i i know Denny much better than i know david i only spent a few weeks with david but they're both there's something otherworldly about both of them something that is hard to put your finger on other than there were times like i'd be sitting behind david lynch in my cast chair while he was like at the monitor and i was in between takes or something and i would like in my mind be like, if you can hear me right now, I feel like you can just give me a sign. And we're in this casino that in the middle of the desert and I'm sitting there and I'm just like sending the signal out and I'm not shitting you guys. He turns around and does this like, smiley kind of nod laugh thing to me, just like, <laughs> and then just back to work. And I was like, I knew it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you should have responded with, hello, jackpot.
3: <laughs> oh.
2: Hello. <laughs> you are stepping into some big shoes in this movie. Brad Doriff plays your character Piter in the first film. Oh boy. Brad Durif, man. Brad Doriff Did you look back at that performance at all? Did you take any notes there or uh, were you trepidatious about playing this character that one of the great character actors of all time brought to life in the first movie?
3: Yes, to your second question. I was trepidatious. I was very nervous. I was very intimidated. But then what you have to do as an actor is remember that like, how many people have played Tom Wingfield in The Glass Menagerie? How many people have played Vince and Barry Child? You have to try and tell yourself that because it's it's very scary to feel like, but there's only one. There's Brad Dourif's Spider DeVries. Like that's that's what I love, you know. So I did read the book because I knew that Denis is such a devotee of the book and a loyalist to the book that the book was going to be great source material for me. You know, I think there's less Piter in Denny's version than there was in David's. I think that it's a very, very, very different approach to both Piter and the Harkonnens and the whole story, in my opinion, in a really incredible and beautiful way. But I hope if he sees this film at some point that he uh, thinks what I did was interesting because he's a, you know, one of the acting heroes that I really look up to and admire.
2: Brand, if you're listening to this, for the love of God, text David and tell him he did a great job. <laughs> and don't
3: wait for a couple <laughs> weeks. What an amazing artist, right? And he's still so prolific. I really admire him so much.
1: He's one of those actors that you look up, you're like that and that and that like the true character actor, you know.
3: And yeah, yeah. Him in Deadwood
2: is just like gut-wrenching and so heartbreaking, an amazing actor. So good. But let's talk about the story of Dune because I think when the first one came out, maybe we weren't thinking about these issues as much, the issues of colonialism and the issues of you know environmental sustainability and all of these things that are inherent in the books. But now these things are really at the forefront of people's minds. And sure. there's so much allegory and so much to sink your teeth into with the story. How did you approach as a performer or you know as a collective, think about these issues? Because they're just like, they're right there. Like it's all there
3: in Dune. Yeah, the book and the story itself is just so timely. That's why I'm excited that the film is coming out now at the moment that it is. And we can see how extremism, fundamentalism, dogmatism, patriarchy has impacted our governments, our society, our environment. And I'm very excited for people to see this film, not because I think it's just like one of the best blockbuster, like get your popcorn and soda ready movies that they've experienced in a long time, but also because I think it says so much about issues that we need to keep thinking and about and talking about. So I will say as a member of the Harkonnen household, that wasn't huge conversations for us with you know, say Denis and the team of people who were telling the story of the protagonist. I know those are things that that the filmmakers and Denis in his heart cared deeply, deeply about. And there's other stuff in here that really needs chewing on, I think, when it comes to gender roles in society. And I love the way that Denis explored the importance of Lady Jessica's journey on this. She's not as the mother of Paul, the the concubine of of Leto. It's like, Wait till you guys see what Rebecca Ferguson does with this role. And wait till you see what Denis and his writing team did with this role. I think it's just so important. I encourage everybody,
2: if they haven't read these books, go in and read these books because the complexity is inherent on the page. And I'm glad to hear that it's coming out in the movie because if you think Paul Atreides is just Luke Skywalker... You're wrong. As much as we have said, like mm, mm,
3: mm. can I I need to say this is because you had asked about other films and how this effect of sci-fi the the thing that other sci-fi doesn't achieve especially at the commercial level. It's so formulaically important to the way that corporate run studios make films that they're like we need our audience to know this is a bad person. This is a good person. This is the objective. This is the obstacle here's the little gold treat at the end of the rainbow. Yay, the dragon's dead, the bad guy's dead, the bad army's dead, the, you know, whatever. Dune ain't that, man. And the way that the book worked that was so magical to me every time I've read it, but especially the older I got, I'm so just mind blown at how Herbert was able to get into each scene and show you these 360 degree points of view from all of the characters so that you were seeing a story in this, Four-dimensional way that just we don't get. And Denis, I believe, achieved that with this film. And that is the hat trick, in my opinion.
2: Absolutely. And and thank you so much for sharing this, you know, perspective on this movie that I think has a lot to say. So I gotta ask one more really important question about this important movie. Yes, yes. Is there anything in this film that is as shocking and memorable as sting in a blue thong? <laughs> You mean, do like, you get into a thong, David? Are there thongs? I know Fade is not in this movie, but I, when
3: I showed up on set and started having to milk actual cats, <laughs> I felt like that was weird. I think that's shocking. No. <laughs> um, there's no cat
2: milking scene in this. Damn it,
3: there's no cat milking. There is nothing as shocking as sting in a thong. I will say, yeah, if you're sitting in that freaking IMAX and you are sipping on your soda your eyes are going to be wide as, as wide as plates when you get the first opportunity to actually see the sandworm it's going to it, 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 i think your jaw will drop it's so incredible
2: i mean i think that is is all you need to hear out there listeners to get on board with this thing thank you david for for joining us from your car for god's sakes
1: thank you it's not his car it's a limo oh my
3: bad Thank you, Jonah. Thank you for correcting. I really appreciate that because I think that needs to be known and I want everyone to know.
2: I'm here to fluff. You know that. (laughs) Jonah, that's why you're the sidekick of this show because you fluff well. Yeah. Thank you again and see Dune as soon as you can, people. Please. Thanks,
1: Dave. Thanks, Jonah. Thanks, buddy. Good to see you. Uh, I'll see you soon. Uh, Have a good trip. As you know, we wrap up the show each week with a Galaxy Brain take from one of our listeners. So here's one. From James in New York City, now.
0: Hi, this is James, and I have a take on David Lynch's Dune. The take is this. The biggest problem with the movie is that it was made too soon. He basically didn't have the technology to pull this off. I mean, if you look at the movie, the sets, the scenes with people, with the actors are pretty damn good. It just all kind of goes to shit once it's out into the space world. So, for example, the creatures. It's like the worms, not great. Don't look that big. The desert scenes from the air also kind of fall down. And if you think about it, it's just weird creative decisions. The factors in the book, Dune, are described like metal dragonflies. In Lynch's Dune, they kind of look like a city bus with a fan on the roof. So basically, I think when it comes to costumes and sets, it's pretty good. But it's the special effects. It just tried to make it kind of Star Wars-y, and it didn't work. Dune should should have been weird, more weird. So that's my take. Poor David. He just couldn't really pull it off. Thank you.
1: This is what a limited budget looks like.
2: (laughs) It wasn't that limited because I lost so much on the damn thing.
1: That's a good point. You know, it's real quick. I know, Dave, you probably have some stuff to say about it, but I'm going to side completely with the caller. James, you have an accent. Makes me think you're smarter than me. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree at all. I think a lot of the practical
2: effects in this movie are abysmal. I think that there's some wonderful stuff they do with the worms. The worms look great and they look like they have weight and they're scary and they do that splaying thing that you see in Alien and other things later on where it just kind of like splits open. Whereas in the new movie, it's just kind of like a tube with like weird teeth in it. It looks kind of like a sarlacc really. But this is a thing that I think we should talk about a little bit. The fact that special effects in the 80s that were done by any company besides Industrial Light and Magic
1: are bad. <laughs> Most of them are bad. But more money, more money and better effects wouldn't have made the story make more sense. No,
2: it was it was all about the story. The story is a problem. By the time you get into the caves with the Fremen, it just falls apart and you don't know what they're talking about. But it is hard to look at sometimes the space stuff, the, the, the ships, the, all the Harkonnen ships and all the uh, Atreides ships and stuff don't look so hot. And that's because the companies that could do the good work were busy on other stuff. ILM was doing Star Trek III, Search for Spock. Uh, before that, they'd done Return of the Jedi. Like that was the Cadillac, if you will, of special effects companies. And they just weren't available to do everything. So you end up with a dog's breakfast. There was no way around it. Uh, now there's like special effects companies out the wazoo. But before, you know, in those the 80s and even into the 90s, it was ILM or bust for a lot of movies. So that's my take. I think I think James is right that the, the special effects in this movie stink. But Jonah, you are right. The script was bad, and that's the biggest problem. If you want to call in, we'd love to hear your Galaxy Brain take on next week's episode topic, Halloween Kills. Our number is 213-570-8069, and it's also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take. And don't forget to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, for God's sake. The
1: reviews must flow! That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, we're going back to Haddonfield to talk about Halloween kills with last podcast on the left's Henry Zabrowski. Boy, you know that Michael Myers just won't die, huh, Dave? (laughs) And neither will this podcast. Why? Because Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway
2: and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautham Shrikashin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant and Russ Frustick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melanzic, who
1: helped create the show. Until next time, I'll
2: kill him! <laughs> and I'm Dave! The sleeper has awakened!